Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in Romans 5. I'm going to cover verses 1 through 11. Our topic, I'm going to call it this, is our wonderful benefits of justification by faith. Our context is this. In chapter 4, Paul has just gone through the whole chapter talking about how Abraham was justified by faith and not by law. And since Abraham is the father of the Jews, and since he believed by faith, and since Gentiles also believe by faith, he's the father of Gentiles also. And he's the father of us all. Justification by faith was his theme there at the end of chapter 3. Was all, Paul was also talking about justification by faith. And so now we he's going to tell us about what great benefits we have by being justified by faith. And just as a summary of that, this is in verses 1 through 11. The summary of the benefits that we get by being justified by faith in verses 1 through 11, I've got 10 of them. Let me read them to you very quickly. We have peace in verse 1. We have access by faith into the very throne room of God in verse 2. We have grace from God in verse 2. We have joy and suffering in verse 3. We have endurance in verse 3. We have character in verse 4. We have hope in verses 4 and 5. We have God's love poured out in our heart in verses 5 and 8. We're saved from the wrath of God in verse 9 and in verse 10. We have reconciliation with God. Now, folks, that's a heap of benefits. And you know, people that say, well, I don't want to be a Christian. I might have to give up some fun I've got in the world. Will you tell me what beats that, what I just read? People do not understand that the world can give you nothing but death. But Jesus can give you all of the good things that I just mentioned. So we start in verse 1 in Romans 5. Therefore, that means therefore, since we have been justified by faith, which was the topic of the last chapter. Therefore, since we've been declared righteous by faith, and declared righteous is the definition of justification, legally declared righteous in God's sight, since we have been justified by faith, or since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's the first benefit, is peace. Now, let's talk about justified. Paul's mentioned this a lot, of course. In Romans 1.17, he says, For in it God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The it there is referring to the gospel, for just in the gospel. For in the gospel, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith, from one person believing to another person believing. I think that's what that means, faith to faith. Or it could be because as our faith increases from a little bit of faith to a greater amount of faith, but, but God's righteousness is revealed as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And of course, Paul there is quoting Habakkuk 2.4. Look, his ego is inflated. He is without integrity. But the righteous one will live by his faith. And of course, the implication is the unrighteous one who is not living by his faith has an inflated ego and is without integrity. All right, so verse 1, we have justification by faith and we have the first benefit, which is peace with God. You know, Jesus promised us peace. John fourteen twenty seven. he said, Peace I leave with you. He promised his disciples, of course, and, and us too, by implication. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Your heart must not be troubled or fearful. Well, the world gives us exactly the opposite of peace, which is worry and fear. If, you, if you're feeling worry and fear, you're thinking worldly. And brother, I have felt that way many a times. You look around this world... I was just talking to a stockbroker the other day, and he kept talking about, how do we invest in this crazy world, in this crazy world? <laughs> i tell you how you invest. You invest knowing that you might lose it all, because the world cannot give you peace. Only Christ can give you peace. The Greek is irony, 
as Thayer defines that Greek word as this, quote, the tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ. Peace is generally the first fruits of our justification. It's the first thing Paul mentions after justification, peace. Now, notice that Paul in verse 1 says, we have been declared righteous by faith. He doesn't say by faith in what? Remember, faith always has to have an object. And a lot of times he just uses shorthand and says faith. But what he means is faith in Jesus Christ and his redeeming work on the cross, his sacrificial work on the cross. In other words, to put it in shorter, faith in Jesus Christ, not just faith in faith or faith in having a positive emotion about things. No, faith in Jesus Christ. We go to verse 2 in Romans 5. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, here's some more benefits. We have access through Jesus into the grace of God, which we obtain by faith. Well, the grace of God means his unmerited favor, stuff he wants to give us free, free, not because of what we have to work to get it, but free, just because he loves us. And how do we get that? Not by doing a work, but by receiving it by faith, by believing. And faith means to believe. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, hope, of course, is a confident expectation. It is not a mere velleity, a mere wish. It is confident expectation. We rejoice in that. Of what? Of the glory of God. The glory of God is the public manifestations of the excellent characteristics of one. And so we rejoice in the hope that we will see God's glory publicly manifested. You know, God is veiled now. We see him in nature and such, but we don't see his full nature fully. Because if we did, we would die. But when we see him face to face, when we die, we, have, we will see him fully. And we will see all of his glory. And so glory always has sort of a future connotation to it. I mean, we see God's glory now. We see God's glory in the heavens. The heavens manifest his glory. We see God's glory now, but we're going to see it big time when we see him face to face. And so that fits in with hope because hope is a confident expectation of the future. So the glory of God that Paul is mentioning here is a future glory of God, the complete glory of God, because he mentions hope. And we rejoice in that. We're going to see that. Now, Paul says we have obtained access through him by faith into this grace. Faith and grace are two words that are often conjoined. The famous scripture that does that is in Ephesians 2.8. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. And the this there is talking about faith. The faith is not from yourselves. It The faith is God's gift. So even our belief in God is a gift from him because we can't believe God on our own because we're so wretched and rotten and rebellious and indifferent to God that he's got to give us even faith. I realize there's some theology behind that. I won't get into that, but notice that you don't have faith. Faith and grace are two sides of the same coin. Faith is the human uh, means by which God's grace is channeled into our lives. Uh, the analogy I like to use, you have a, a an aqueduct that is bringing water into your city, the water that flows through the aqueduct it gives life. That's the analogous to grace. And the aqueduct is the faith by which we allow, by which the water is allowed to come in. You don't have grace without believing in God and you, and you don't have faith without God's grace giving you the, the power and the desire to, to believe in God. Now, Paul says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. I've already given you my definition of glory, the public manifestation of one's excellent characteristics. Let me give you Thayer's definition. The lexicon, quote, most glorious condition, most exalted state, the glorious condition of blessedness into which true Christians shall enter after their Savior's return from heaven. And Thayer's definition of glory has that future aspect, talking about Christ's return at the end. 
Steve Atkinson says that his, a synonym of glory is presence, and I've heard this a lot. And I guess the idea, if you're standing in the presence of God, that means that you're going to see publicly manifested all of his excellent characteristics. So if that's the case, then we can say this. We rejoice in the hope of the presence of God. We rejoice in the hope of standing before God rather than being cast away from his presence forever in hell because we've rejected him. So if we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, contrast that with us before we got saved. Romans 3.23, for we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're not going to make it if that's what falls short of the glory of God. Now that could mean we don't have enough glory in us because we're fallen human beings and so forth. We're not as glorious as God meant us to be when, when he created us. It could be that, but it, it could also mean we're not going to obtain, we're not going to see God's glory. We're going to fall short of obtaining the privilege of seeing God's glory if we don't believe in Jesus. We go now to Romans 5, verses 3 through 4. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. And not only that, not only what, well, that's referring to the previous verse, not only do we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, not only have we obtained access through him by faith into God's grace, not only that, Here's some more good news. We also rejoice in our afflictions. So that's another thing. Most people can't rejoice in our afflictions, and I admit I have a hard time with that. But we know that Jesus loves us even when we're going through a trial. Every Christian will tell you when they go through horrible trials and they come out and say, Oh, God got me through that. I love him even more than I did before I went into the trial. We rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. There's another good benefit of justification. After the affliction... After we are able to enjoy some reflection, then we endure the affliction. We, we go date. We put our foot one foot in front of another and get through it. We have endurance. And then endurance produces proven character. It takes personal character to get through hard times, not fold up. Proven character produces hope. And then when we realize, hey, man, we got through this affliction and this trial, I'm going to make it. I'm going to see Jesus. I'm going to see the glory of God. I'm going to see God face to face. Now, notice that we rejoice in our afflictions, Paul says in verse 3, Romans 5, we rejoice in our afflictions, not because of our afflictions, as the NIV Study Bible points out. Afflictions are evil. We should not rejoice because of the evil. We rejoice because of the byproduct of afflictions, not because of the afflictions themselves. We shouldn't say, oh, thank God I'm sick. Thank God I've got cancer. No. We say, thank God you're going to help me get through this, whether I survive it and, and, and beat it in this life or whether I uh, die and I'm and I and my spirit sees Jesus uh, face to face. Either way, I've got hope. As the NIV Study Bible puts it, Paul does not advocate a morbid view of life by saying, "Oh, I'm so happy that a ten-ton safe fell out of a wind and landed on my head." Praise the Lord! No, we don't. We don't act like that. Now that's that's not good. Now I've noticed that Paul assumes that there are going to be afflictions in this life. We also rejoice in our afflictions. He never says that we are going to not have afflictions in this life. He never promises us a rose garden, as the metaphor goes. Now here's some options as to what suffering might be referred to. This is just some random options that come from life. Struggling with sin. Maybe somebody's watching pornography and can't stop watching it. Tension between husband and wife. Marital problems. Child-rearing problems. I love this quote from Michael Douglas in Wall Street 2, I think it was. Parents are bones upon which children continually gnaw. Our job might be causing us suffering. How many people do you know that have lousy jobs? I would say the majority. I love praying for people's jobs. 
because everybody has trouble with jobs. I used to tell my management students in college that managerial ability is distributed very sparsely through the population. Most people don't know how to manage other people. They don't treat them like human beings. And they manage for selfish reasons. As a result, the job is miserable. Persecution. Think of all the Christians in China. I can't even go back to China now. I doubt it. I could get back in because of the... I mean, just the other day, I had a a Chinese Christian in Chicago. They want to evangelize Chinese students in America. Well, you think, well, in America, they're safe from the long hand of Xi Jinping's communism. Well, actually... The students coming over now, as exchange students to college, are told by their beloved government, stay away from those Christians. We are going to monitor your religious activity. And now, Christians can't even go to the airport to pick up these students, these intercultural foreign student uh, missions and ministries on college campuses. They can't do that anymore. Just unbelievable. So, yeah, that's afflictions. How about disease? Gosh, how many people... You listen to prayer requests in church. How many times is for sickness? Our bodies are subject to every weakness and germ known to man. Let's read another scripture that talks about afflictions of Christians. Acts fourteen twenty two, strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them it is necessary to pass through many troubles on our way into the kingdom of God. Now note, we do enter the kingdom of God. We are not destroyed. We rejoice in our hope. We we Rejoice in our sufferings. And you notice that Paul strengthened the evangelistic team, Paul and his friends here, strengthened the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith. In other words, hey, yeah, he did say, you're not going to have any more afflictions. He says, you're going to have afflictions, but continue, continue on. Pass through the troubles and get into the kingdom of God. That really is a positive verse there. Now we're supposed to rejoice in our sufferings, as Paul says here. In verse 3, we are supposed to rejoice in our afflictions. But, you know, sometimes suffering causes people to curse God rather than praise him. Remember Job's wife and he was going through his afflictions and Job's wife told him to curse God and die. No, and Job refused to do that to his everlasting credit. We don't curse God. Now, I remember one time I went through some stuff, really bad stuff. And I remember thinking, you know, I don't feel like living down here too much anymore. And I was I was, I was kind of I said, God, I, I, you know, I know I'm not supposed to commit suicide. So I'm not going to do that. But I don't think you. And I didn't want my wife to be left behind. I'm not sure she could handle certain things, you know. I said, well, maybe I better hang around some more. But God, you know, it would be nice to be in your kingdom right now. <laughs> so, you know, but I never, I never even thought about it. Never even came close to my mind to cursing God. I mean, anybody that curses God is a fool. Is an idiot. So anyway, we're not trying to sugarcoat the Christian life by any means. But remember now, this is still good news because we rejoice in our afflictions because we know that we're going to get through the afflictions. We're going to endure them. And then we're going to have improving character because of our endurance. And then after that, we're going to have hope. What? Hope. The hope to see the glory of God. The hope of the glory of God, as Paul puts it in verse 2. That's good news, folks, because everybody's going to suffer. I don't care whether you're a Christian or not. You're going to suffer. I remember reading a quote years ago by Tennessee Williams, the American, the star-crossed American playwright. This was when he was popular. He was talking about the glass menagerie, and he, uh, and he said, you know, you better get used to suffering. You better get used to it because you're certainly going to experience it. I watched a biography uh, on YouTube about Tennessee Williams, and boy, did he ever suffer. He suffered big time. He was a nothing burger. I remember one of his friends said at the end, the New York City theater critics killed him, murdered him. He was a total failure at the end of his life. 
rejected by his homosexual lovers and all kind of stuff. You know, it was just terrible. He had a horrible life. And so, but he, so he was not a Christian. So you don't have to be a Christian to be suffer. You, you're going to suffer if you're not a Christian. So if this is your choice, why not suffer your afflictions with Jesus by your side? The Jesus who created the whole universe, Yahweh, God who created the whole universe, why not suffer with him living in you? Why not suffer with Jesus who said he would never leave you nor forsake you? Well, I think the choice is quite clear. It's quite obvious. Now, notice that Paul in verse 3, Romans 5, says, because we know that affliction produces endurance. So Paul is again appealing to the common experience of him and his believers. We all know that affliction produces endurance. So, But the Christian experience is something that Paul appeals to a lot. He uses that word, word we know. In a previous audio, I listed, uh, listed out about 10 places, most of them in Romans, I think. We know that. We know that. We know that. Paul is appealing to the experience of Christians. And there's nothing wrong with doing that because we know the same Jesus that lives in us lives in our fellow Christians. And so he's going to, in general, be doing some of the same stuff in the people we're talking to as well as us. We go to verse 5 in Romans 5. This hope, this hope of standing in the glory of God, this hope of the glory of God, will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So the Christian's hope is not founded upon unfounded optimism, as the NIV Study Bible states. It is based on reality. So we're not going to be disappointed, or as the ESV has, we're not going to be put to shame. Let me go back and quote verse 2 to you in Romans 5 again. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Again, hope. This hope will not disappoint us because we will stand in the glory of God and the hope of the glory of God will not put us to shame. What does that mean? Put us to shame. Well, we're not going to be put to shame on judgment day because the glory of God will be ours. Now, notice in verses one through five, we have the three persons of the Trinity are mentioned for all you Trinitarian folks out there, which I hope is 100 percent of you. God, the father is mentioned in verses one and two. Verse one since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God. There's God the Father. Verse 2, we have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in, re rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. There's God the Father in verses 1 and 2. How about God the Son? He's mentioned in verse 1. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the Son. How about God the Holy Spirit? Verse 5. God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All you Jesus-only Pentecostals, all you Unitarians out there, how do you ignore these plain scriptures? Not only do we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit mentioned, we also have faith, hope, and love. You know that great verse in Romans, 1 Corinthians 13, 13, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Well, Paul mentions all three of those in these verses. Let's start with faith, Romans 5.1. Since we have been declared righteous by faith, let's then move to hope. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's verse 2 in Romans 5. Romans 4 and 5, proven character produces hope, and this hope will not disappoint us. So there's hope. All right, now we've got faith, hope, and love. Faith and hope. Now let's look at love. Verse 5. Because God's love has been poured out in our hearts. Faith, hope, and love. Now, that's some of the benefits of justification. Faith, hope, and love. Oh, but I can't play. I can't go out and fornicate. I can't go out and gamble and get drunk and throw up with a hangover every night. I want to go to my worldly parties and have fun. I can't commit adultery anymore. 
Christianity is such spoil sports. They never have any fun. All right, one more point here before we leave verse 5. God's love has been poured out in our hearts. Now, I'm assuming, well, the Holman Christian Study Bible assumes that it's God's love for us, not our love for God. But actually, that's one of those genitives that can be translated subjectively, objectively, and creates a lot of ambiguity a lot of times in the Greek. You know, it's interesting. People always say that Greek is such a precise language. It's good language for science, good language for philosophy. Well, that might be true. And all languages have ambiguities at some places in different places than the other language. But Greek, it really gets ambiguous with this genitive thing. The love of God, is that God's love for us or is it our love for God? The love of God? Think about it. Well, I think it's God's love for us. That's been poured out in our hearts. Because I always like to put the emphasis on what God has done for us. But it's true that when he loves us, we love him back. I mean, it's true either way. But I think that's really Paul meant God's love for us. We go to verse 6. For while we were still helpless at the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly. We were still helpless because we were dying in our sins, incapable of uh, saving ourselves. That's why, you know, I think about if I were an Arminian, I would have problems with this. If I were had the ability to choose God, I wouldn't be helpless, would I? But we are not going to get into theology here. We were still helpless. We were unsaved at the appointed moment. That means when it was time for God to put Jesus on the cross to present Jesus to the world as the Savior of our sins at that appointed moment, the appointed moment in God's redemptive plan, as the NIV Study Bible puts it. The NIV translates it at, at the right time. I think appointed moment sounds a little bit better than that. That idea is in the Gospels and in Paul's letters, other letters. Mark 1.15 says this, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. That's John the Baptist. The time is fulfilled. In other words, it's time for Jesus to come. He's coming soon. Galatians 4.4, 4, when the time came to completion, God sent his son born of a woman born under the law. In other words, God had his plan of salvation. He knew exactly when he was going to do what, and Jesus came. So we were helpless until he came, and then when he came, we're not helpless anymore because he died for us, died for the ungodly. Ungodly means sinners. We are called sinners and God's enemies later on in our passage here in Romans 5, 8, and 5, 10. In 5, 8, we read this, but God proves his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in 5, 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. We were sinners and we were enemies. Now, we need to look at this word sinners. I always like, I've got this little talk I've got called Sinners or Saints, and I always talk, started out by asking the audience, are you a sinner or are you a saint? And usually I get 50-50 in a lot of, I don't know, he's trying to trick me, which I am. But, but And I said, no, there ought to be a full-throated, I'm a saint, I'm not a sinner. The Bible clearly tells us that we're saints and not sinners. And I can prove it, not here, but I can prove it. Because we were sinners before we got saved. We were ungodly and now we're godly and we're saints. And you say, but, 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 but I sin when I'm a saint. Yeah, well, of course you do. But the difference is, is that you lapse into sin and loathe it when you're a saint. But when you're a sinner, you leap into sin and love it, as the late Adrian Rogers used to say. Also, we need to think of that word sinners. It's not here as the ungodly. They're sinners. They are sinners by nature. And so they, like a dog, is a dog by nature, so he does what dogs do. He barks. Well, sinners are sinners by nature, so they do what sinners do. They sin. But now we're saints. So now we do what saints do. We do acts of holiness. But every now and then we do something outside of our nature. We sin like a dog. Let's see. That would be analogous to a dog starting to meow like a cat. You know, he's not doing something according to his nature. And when we sin, we're doing something that's just as weird 
as a dog meowing because sinning is not part of our holy nature anymore. It's alien to us. It's there. It's like poison in a body that needs to get, be gotten rid of. It's there, but it's not us. But that's a little bit of theology that we are not going to get into right now. We go to verses 7 and 8 of Romans 5. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, that someone would die for a just person, that is not theologically just. Justified, that means you're perfectly without sin in God's eyes. You're declared perfectly righteous. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about just person from human standpoints. We All, all non-Christians have an idea of what's just and unjust. We, we say that they're a good citizen or they're a good person. And, you know, we understand what that means, but and that's what Paul means here. He's talking about sometimes pagans will die for another pagan if they're if they're decent. But it's rare. He does say it's rare, for rarely will someone do that. The classic example is in, in military situations where a fellow soldier will see a grenade come into the to the bunker and he will throw his body over the, gr- the grenade to save his fellow soldiers. And we consider that extremely heroic and we give them medals. Doesn't happen often, but it does happen. But how many times do you see a soldier fall on a grenade to save the life of an enemy soldier? That's what God did, because we were his enemies, remember? We'll see that, I think it's verse 10, when it says we're his enemy. We were his enemies, we were ungodly, and yet Christ died for us. No human being is going to die for an enemy soldier by falling on the grenade. Jesus died for us, and we were his enemies. And so that means that God proves his own love for us by doing that, by, by dying for us. By sending Christ to die for us. Proves means to show publicly. Now God proves what? He, he shows what? His own love for us. So putting Christ up on the cross was an act of love for suffering humanity. Now we use that word love so much that it tends to become trite. So let's unpack it a little bit. Thayer's lexicon says love is affection, goodwill, benevolence. The New Bible Dictionary says love is self-sacrifice for the good of the loved one. Unswerving loyalty, Steve Ackerson says, it is unselfish, benevolent concern for our good, devotion. You know, talking about love becoming a little bit cheap, think about this. How many husbands and wives do you know say that the wife calls up the husband and says, would you stop by the grocery store on the way back from work and pick up a gallon of milk? And the husband says, yeah, I'll do that. I love you, honey. And she says, I love you every time. It doesn't matter the most mundane transaction that you have to do to get through the life. I love you. I love you. You know, after a while, you know, it becomes trite, trivial. God's love for us is, when we think about love, we need to just get past the idea of your love. You know, love, talking about trite and trivial. When I was in China, Chinese loved to put English on T-shirts. They never read the T-shirts half the time, because sometimes they would have obscenities on the T-shirts, but they would have things like, please love me, or I love you, love, 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 love. It was everywhere on the on the birthday cards, on their scratch pads and notepads, on their T-shirts, love, love, love. I said, yeah, you know, guys, you don't know what love is. You don't, you don't have a foggy side. And also when they have romantic love, these college students, and I'd say, well, you know, love is self-sacrifice for the other person, right? I said, why, are you getting, why do you want to get married? Why do you want to have a boyfriend? I said, isn't always the reason selfish? I want him to make me feel secure. I don't want, I, 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 I want people to see that I'm successful in getting a handsome man. I want financial security. I said, isn't the reason always selfish, but isn't love the opposite of selfishness? Have you ever thought about that? Or if you're talking to a guy, I want to have sex or whatever. 
that's that self-sacrifice for the good of the loved one? That's unswerving loyalty, affection, goodwill, and benevolence? No, it's not. It's selfishness. So most of us don't know what love is. But when you die for an enemy, man, that's love that we can't, we can't imagine. So Christ died for us. Christ died for the ungodly in verse 6 here. Uh, verse, I'm sorry, verse 8, he died for us. And his death was redemptive. That means he bought us out of slavery to sin. It was substitutionary, which means he died instead of us. It was propitiatory, which means his death appeased the wrath of an angry father, God, and it atoned for our sins, it covered our sins, and it reconciled us with God. All right, we continue now to verse 9 in Romans 5. Paul goes on, Much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, we will be saved through him from wrath. Again, he's piling on the benefits of justification by faith. Much more. In other words, much more than someone dying for an enemy, Christ dying for us ungodly sinners, even more than that, we're going to be saved from his wrath. Even more than God proving his love for us by dying on the cross, by sending Jesus to die on the cross. Even more than that, we have been declared righteous by his blood. Now, of course, blood is just shorthand for Jesus' death on the cross because the idea is when blood is spilt, so is life spilt. Life is gone. And so by his blood means by his death on the cross, we've been declared righteous, and declared righteous is the definition of justification. So we've been justified by his blood, by his death on the cross, and we will be saved, and we will be saved through him from wrath. We will not have to experience God's wrath because we're saved. And that's what saved means. You're always saved from something. That word has gotten a little bit trite too. Are you saved? Does that mean if I've been baptized, if I've been to church? No, it means you've been saved from the wrath of God as well as from death, as well as from hell. So, now we're saved, declared righteous by Jesus' blood. The idea of blood having life, being life, is comes from a famous verse in Leviticus, Leviticus 17:11. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have appointed it to you to make atonement on the altar for your lives, since it is the lifeblood that makes atonement. So, once the blood goes, there's been a death, and that death pays the penalty for what we deserve, which is death, for all of our crimes and sins against God. Now, notice that Paul says in verse 9, we will be saved through him from wrath. You would think he would say we have been saved through him, but he says we'll be saved. This implies that salvation continues on from the point of justification, from the point of our conversion and becoming born again. We are still saved. We are still saved by his death as we live our life. In other words, all the way through our life, we will never experience the wrath of God. We will be saved through him from wrath. There's no wrath of God on our heads all the way through our lives. Now, we are, salvation means we're saved from hell and death. We know that. But here we're saved from the wrath of God. Moving on to verse 10 of Romans 5. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. There's the future aspect of being saved, being saved by Jesus' life in verse 10, which I alluded to here in verse 9, will be saved. Now, it says we were enemies before we were saved. Now, there's two options, two ways to read that. It could mean that man and God are both enemies of each other, and that's the way I take it. But then I've studied about points out that it also could be could mean this. Man is the enemy of God, but God is not the enemy of man. We're God's enemy, but God is not our enemy. Oh, no, wait a minute. How can I say this? We are God's enemy, but God is not our enemy. Well, I think that kind of takes away from the 
impact of the fact that we're enemies of God because he has his wrath. If his wrath is on our heads, doesn't that, doesn't that make him our enemy? And he died for us anyway. He died for people that were his enemies. It just it takes away from the strength and the power of that assertion, I think, to say that there's only enmity on one side. No. I mean, look at Colossians one twenty one and 22. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds because of your evil actions. Well, does that just mean it's we were alienated? If you're alienated from some, if A is alienated from B, that by definition seems to me to say that B is alienated from A. And if A is hostile to B, I would assume that B is also hostile to A. So I think we're God, we're enemies of God and God is enemies of us. And that's before we're saved. But then thank God because of his grace, we become reconciled and saved by his life. Now, what does reconcile mean? This is one more benefit, by the way, of being justified, being reconciled with God. What does it mean? You know, if you study the Bible, says it means to put an end to hostility. Thayer says the adjustment of a difference, restoration to favor. The New Bible Dictionary says the bridging over of a quarrel. An internet source named Reinecker says the exchange of enmity for friendship. And as a result, instead of being at war with God, being an enemy of God, we now have peace with God. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice how closely reconciliation is is with the concept of justification. In verse 9, Paul says we are justified by his blood and we shall be saved. In verse 10, he says we are reconciled through the death of his son. We shall be saved. Let me say that again. Verse 9, we're justified by his blood. Verse 10, we're said we're, it says we're reconciled through the death of his son. Blood and death is the same thing. So we're justified and we're reconciled by the death of his son. And we're saved when we're justified, and we are reconciled uh, after we're saved. There's a slight difference maybe in in focus here. Justification is a legal term. Reconciliation is much more personal. They're closely related. Now I mentioned the, the future aspect of salvation. We will be saved by his life. We will be delivered by his life, saved from our enemies, the persecution, the trials, and all the garbage that comes on us. We're going to be saved by the life of Jesus. Hebrews 7.25, therefore he is always able to save those who come to God. Now see, he, he always lives to intercede for them, Hebrews 7.25 said. So this salvation that Jesus gives us is not just an immediate salvation when we get converted, getting saved from death and hell. It means an ongoing lifetime experience of salvation. And of course, salvation means to be made whole, by the way, as well as deliver. Now, how does Jesus' continuing life save us? Paul gives no explanation here exactly, but here's some options. Here's one from Adam Clark. Steve Atkinson says that his, he saves us, his, his continuing life saves us because his resurrection proves that he is God, as he's claimed, as in Romans 1.4, who has been declared to be the powerful son of God by the resurrection from the dead. Or it could be the fact that he continually intercedes for us. That's how he saves us, through his continuing life. Let me read the verse again in Romans 5.10. Having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. So that's what we're talking about. How we're saved by his life? Well, continual, lifelong intercession in Hebrews 7.25. All right, let me, let me back up again. How are we saved from his life? Option number one, because his resurrection proves that he is God he's, as he has claimed. And so all the way through our lives, we have proof that God, that Jesus is God. That's, that's a little bit, a little bit out there. I think Hebrews 7.25 works better. He continually intercedes before the Father for us. He is always able to save those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. we got salvation and intercession right there in Hebrews 7.25. 
John Gill says he continues to save us by continuing to live in the hearts of his people. Or he continues to renovate our nature into the image of God is another option. But at any rate, Jesus lives with us. We have salvation all the way through our lives. We are saved by his life, and it keeps right on going. It doesn't occur just at salvation. We go to verse 11, and we'll finish up this section of Romans 5. And not only that, not only what, well, the reconciliation that we just talked about in verse 10. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's rejoicing again. He's already mentioned rejoicing earlier in verse 3. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions. So he's already mentioned that. So now he mentions rejoicing again in verse 11. Not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We now have received this reconciliation through him. We've just talked about reconciliation. And so that's a summary of the first 11 verses. Verse 11 sort of finishes it up. And so now what I'm going to do is I'm going to rehash the 10 benefits that I found here in Romans 1 through 11 that we have because of justification by faith. Being declared righteous by belief, if you want to put it another way. We get peace in verse 1. We get access by faith. Confident access into the throne room of God in verse 2. We have God's grace in verse 2, his unmerited favor. We have joy and suffering in verse 3. We have endurance in verse 3. We have proven character in verse 4. We have hope in verses 4 and 5. We have God's love poured out into our hearts in verses 5 and 8. And we're saved from the wrath of God in verse 9. And we are reconciled with God in verse 10. And with that, folks, we will end our discussion of Romans 5, 1 through 11. We will now, in the next audio, start in verse 12 and talk about how sin entered the world. And we'll talk about Adam's role in that and so forth and so on. We'll talk about original sin, in other words. We'll see you next audio. Hope you enjoyed this one. 